Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Liverpool is title town again at last, ending 30 years of so-called hurt, which included two Champions League victories, several domestic cups and signing Phil Babb. We pour over their victory in the Premier League, but ponder what's next at Anfield. Will Jurgen Klopp's brilliance continue? What will renewal of the current squad look like? And can James Milner play into his 60s? Reassuring summer knockout football is back with us. The FA Cup has given us an all-star semi-final lineup. We'll look over everything that happened this weekend in the country's best and only remaining knockout competition. Plus, woeful Watford, managers who speak to specific generations of players and why Barcelona are struggling in Spain. Let's take you now into a series of remote audio recording facilities where I'm joined, first of all, by my good friend JJ Bull. What's happening, JJ? Hello, Tom. I'm good. How are you? Are you having a nice Yeah, I'm time? all right. I'm all right. You know, week, week 200 and I'm going relatively strong. Week 200? Of... It feels like it, doesn't it? Oh, right. Yeah, I see. I thought you meant like the 200th podcast, it's like celebration, but no. Yeah, no. well, we should we should celebrate. Uh, yeah. Still standing. Alongside us, as tends to be the case, it's Mina Rizuki. How are you, Mina? Why wasn't I introduced as your friend, Tom? Your good friend. <laughs> I don't want to be presumptuous, Mina. Uh, Colleague. Oh, so we're not even there, huh? Um, yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm I've, okay now. <laughs> I've known you, Mina, for, I reckon... Uh, a year to 18 months less shorter than uh, JJ Ball. So, you know. Yeah, but do you remember was... how we first met? Of course. Yeah. Oh, we, okay. we won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's for next week's week. podcast to bring you back. <laughs> we, met in a, we met in a purely professional capacity on a rival broadcasting um, yes. uh, show, didn't we, Mina? Yeah. Yes, we did indeed. Yeah. Competition. Audio it was a competition. Club. Yeah, Audio Football Club loyalists now. Completing our lineup, it's a return for Sam Dean. What have you been up to, Sam? Oh, all sorts. It's good to be back. I'm, I'm delighted that the podcast is back up and running, the football's back up and running. And I just want to know who won out of Mina and Tom on that rival podcasting oh, competition. Yeah, well, I think, I think on that rival podcasting uh, show, I think we've done a couple together, haven't we, Mina? We, we should mm. go back and find the results. Um, yeah, we really and, should. Uh, but it's yes. safe to say that I don't think either of us won. Well, speak for yourself, mate. Let's start <laughs> with League Champions Liverpool. We've had a few days now to process the title win, uh, to get into how they've done it. I'm sure we've all read lots about it, as have you, AFC listener. So let's talk instead a little bit about what happens next for Liverpool. I want to know, do you make them favourites, Mina, for next year's Premier League title? Yeah, I make them favourites for the next three. Um, oh. I know that sounds weird, actually, because it, it's increasingly hard in this level of the Premier League, um, considering the fact that in most leagues, you're usually fighting one other big club, which is, you know, the case, I guess, with Manchester City. But you just know that other clubs will come into it. Chelsea, for one, is going to be a force next season. And... And yet there is this great power that I believe in when it comes to Liverpool. 
even even if they don't actually change that much, although I think it's necessary for them to change the team because you you need to always um, make sure that no one feels complacent or anything. This is a, a team where people are like, oh, the front three are aging. Not really. They're in their prime. And I feel like there's still so much left for them to do. And they are under a coach who is very demanding, but he also makes the atmosphere so happy. So I think when you're in a happy atmosphere and you're not being tasked with all this pressure to get every single tactic right, it's more more or less just go out and have fun and rock and roll and, you know, indulge in your speed, indulge in your actual um individual abilities where you're not having to conform too much to whatever it is the team requires a lot of them are just let go and allowed to do what they do best um I think for that reason it's so much fun to play for club so much fun to play for Liverpool and I do think that they are they have realized what this means to win the Champions League was one thing and it was a lot of fun but to win the Premier League a lot of them came out and said it was an emotional thing and I and I cannot think that something that meant so much on a psychological level to see that impact to see what the fans are going through right now if that's not going to make you favorites for next season i honestly don't think what uh, anything will i suppose the question is slightly how you keep that momentum going because it has all been building to this as we've seen and uh, read and been reminded of plenty in the last week or so it's been 30 years um but but how do you reset and keep it going sam well, that's the the big challenge, and just on Mina's point about the the favourites, I think so much of it will depend on the outcome of City's appeal against their Champions League ban. Um, if if that's overturned and they are allowed back into the Champions League, they're going to have a lot of money to spend, and the rebuild that they've been planning can can go ahead without the same financial fair play limitations, and with an owner, obviously, who has a lot of firepower which will not be affected by the coronavirus pandemic so but Sam, there of... are no more fullbacks to buy for them <laughs> <laughs> there, there are always more fullbacks <laughs> always more fullbacks and holding midfielders and nice number eights who can dance around the midfield and city if they can get back in the champions league i think will spend quite a lot of money and become quite a lot better quite quickly which would be a major threat to liverpool for obvious reasons if they don't and they struggle to keep hold of players, someone like Kevin De Bruyne, for example, has already hinted that he wants Champions League football, then I, I can't see anybody else coming close to threatening Liverpool at this stage. But um, but Tom, you're right about the, the motivation side of things and, and keeping it ticking over. What, what I would say is that Klopp won back-to-back titles with Borussia Dortmund, so he's he's done that before in terms of picked them up and, and kept them going, but it is a different thing when it's been a 30-year wait and there was so much emotion behind it. And you do wonder if now they've reached this pinnacle and finally got that monkey off their backs, how it will how it will affect them going forward next year. And we, we always knew about Alex Ferguson's teams, for example, that one of the, the things he did so well was kept, kept that fire going and kept refreshing the squad to keep it fresh. And, and all the evidence so far is that Liverpool will not be refreshing the squad hugely due to their own finances, the coronavirus and, and, and the way they operate. So it will be largely the same set of players who are getting older. Yes, they're in their prime, but the average age of the players this season is 27, which is the 14th highest in the, in the Premier League. So it's not a young team necessarily. And I think there's only two regulars in the whole first team under the age of 25, and that's Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and Joe Gomez. So at one point soon, there will be a refreshing process needed. And it's just how long they can get through with this current crop before the, the decline comes. Can I say that when it comes to sort of winning the World Cup, they say 27, 28 is the ideal age for a team to win it. I mean, one of the reasons why Real Madrid have won three Champions League in a row is because their average age is that. I know that for England, it's become almost like old to be 28 now. Um, for Serie A, that's when you are still a youth player coming into your own. But like generally speaking... I do think that's the perfect age because you have combined the maturity and, of course, the experience level with the fitness levels. And I think when you consider the only two players, Milner, I think, and Henderson are over 30, there's still so much more to the side that can be done. There's still so much to to prove and to improve. And it's interesting because Borussia Dortmund was such a great team under Klopp and they sort of petered out and they started falling apart and you started thinking maybe it was too much for them or maybe they didn't regenerate well enough. Or, But the difference with Dortmund at the time is that 
they are a team that doesn't obviously pay the big bucks. They are a team that are still second to Bayern Munich. They're not on the same level that Liverpool and City are. So when you lose the players like Lewandowski and Goetze, it becomes much harder for you to really try to push forward when you know that there's somewhere else that players would rather be. Players at Liverpool don't want to go anywhere else. They're happy where they are. And the players that they've recruited are not there because they are the world's greatest in the same way that Manchester City do, perhaps. They are players that are the greatest for the roles that they have been bought on for. And I think that's what makes the difference because I think that a lot of the reason their scouting is so good is because it is about the mental edge. It is about that hunger that they have and that's what they look for before they get their players. That, to me, is more important than buying players that happen to be the best in their role but perhaps don't fit your team well enough. What you say about the scouting is interesting, Mina. The transfer business in general has been absolutely sensational for Liverpool. The players they've shipped out have been sold at the right times. They've The net spend is uh, really, really impressive that they've actually not uh, spent a whole lot more than they've earned. There's surely a bit of deg- there's a bit of luck in that, JJ. It doesn't seem to me that any team in history has recruited as well as Liverpool have for the last two or three years, uh, for you know longer than that period uh, in a row. It it could all unravel slightly if they have a few dodgy transfer windows. Uh, maybe it doesn't seem to be a lot of luck to me. I think it's. Um... Liverpool are really, really uh, data orientated, and, and there was this transfer committee thing that often got made fun of. Uh, like when when Klopp came in that summer, he came in in October, but um, the summer before he came in, they signed Christian Benteke for forty two million pounds. Like this is the kind of thing that they were dealing with at the time. And then slowly, what they've done is rather than try and panic and spend lots of money to to improve a team at, at once, they've signed uh, one or two key players at big money and just let the team build that way and slowly got out the ones that weren't going to fit the model. And I can't see any difference in what they'll do. And they're in a place now where like, the average age of the squad is good. There are youngsters coming through. There are players who are challenging first-team places now. So you could say that um, to keep players like Salah and Mane and Firmino um, at the top of their game, you need to have competition for places. Now, you could bring in... like Say, say Liverpool were to go... It would make sense if they were to go £100 million and sign someone like Jadon Sancho, that kind of thing. Because then they've got a player who um, would push Salah for that key position. But Salah's still his peak, so you don't want to sign Sancho just now because then there's no real place for him, even though they're challenging each other. So then you look at like the youth players they've got coming through, and Klopp said in the past that he wants to to try and bring academy players through because you, you, you gain something from, I think, academy players that you don't get when you buy an external person in. Like They already know how the, the internal network of the club works and they already understand the infrastructure, and, and uh, especially like tactical demands, that's just a natural thing because they all know it. So there's a lot of, um, the planning that has gone at Liverpool, I mean, Klopp's obviously involved in it, but the way the club is run, that is all paid huge dividends now with this league win. And you can see it's all a massive, long process. What about tactically, JJ? You spoke recently about how there does seem to be a bit of a consensus now about how to play against Liverpool. And they seem to have had it a little bit tougher uh, in recent weeks, with the exception perhaps of that Palace game where they were sensational before they won the league. How do they adapt to that? Uh, and do, do you back Klopp to figure that out and uh, and combat the way that they're now being played against? Yeah, like they've... They're an amazing team, and they've got better players than most other teams, so they're going to win the majority of them anyway. Like the, the way it beat them, that people are, are keeping uh, kind of quiet, has been to, like I think I spoke about this last week or before, but you you play a four four two, and like some teams like uh, Atletico Madrid and Watford had two wide midfielders, double backups. You effectively had four centre backs and two full backs, and that covers Liverpool's advanced full backs because they push right up and become wingers, and then you can uh, try and block the middle of the pitch, and then you have to hit them on the counter and uh, exploit any space that's left behind. But, um, like, Carl Ancelotti did it with, with Napoli, did played very well at Everton, uh, the last game they played, doing a sort of similar thing again with a 4-4-2. But there's, like, Liverpool are so good that they can come round all these different tactical things. You think, like, Bar- people have worked out how to play against the good Barcelona team back in the day. People have worked out how to play against Man City now. But they're still so good that they can get round it. And it's partly because... These players are so driven, like that mentality monster thing that Klopp keeps saying, 
it's dead right. It's not all the way. They have really talented individual players in a perfectly functioning system, but it's also that they have this drive and determination that others just can't match. So they play at a level, which means they're able to overcome this. And Klopp knows what he's doing. Like you look at um, talking about Borussia Dortmund earlier. You look at how they had that. Um, remember the, the the league season when they, they just went nuts and they collapsed and it seemed like they just fallen apart. Like XG wise, they were seriously underperforming, so they should have been well up the table. They should have been where they ended up finishing. I think roughly after the winter break, they managed to get back up to it. It's something to do with not taking chances, a bit of luck, and these are the kind of variables that make football fun. Because XG says something, but that doesn't mean that's naturally how it works. Because other factors don't take place. And you see with Liverpool, they are really overperforming this season, but it's because they are so good mentally that they are able to have done that. So I think it'll all balance out eventually. I, I, I said before that Liverpool have the 14th highest average age in the Premier League. Of that, I obviously meant they have the 7th highest and the 14th lowest. I just clarify <laughs> that because that fact was very wrong. But, the, but if you look at, the, if you look at the, um, the refreshing process we're talking about, and JJ mentioned the young players coming through, there's a lot of expectation on, on Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott in particular. Also, they like Nico Williams, the right back, who's been very impressive when he's played this season. He's, he's a really good player already, that boy. Yeah. Nico Williams. Yeah. But also, you look at the players they've signed recently, uh, and look at Minamino, for example, who's not really featured a huge amount and not done a huge amount when he has played. But he is someone they've signed, not for now, but for two or three years' time, perhaps when Firmino's below his best and moving on. And the same probably for Naby Keita, who, again, not had a huge role to play in this season, but has been signed for the long term in mind. So they have sort of got that process going, but there is a bit of a gap in terms of the age uh, for players sort of in the 23 to 26 bracket at the club right now. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's where they look in the, the next few transfer windows. What about Klopp, Mina? He seems about as committed as you could hope for at the moment, given everything he's done for Liverpool. But do you think the club have got a succession plan in place for him? And who would be on that list if they did? Yeah, it's interesting to see because... You know, once upon a time, you would sort of expect coaches, if they are happy somewhere, which he is extremely happy to be where he is, they could commit to a long-term plan. But you just feel like the job is so exhausting now um, that I'm not sure that he can stick it out for until 2024 or beyond that. Um, It's interesting, actually, because I was talking about this and some people say that the long-term vision is Steven Gerrard. Is that true? Um, I, I don't know whether this is something like you know, I think this is something that the fans probably want in the same way that Lampard has come back to Chelsea and done this. Uh, I, I mean, I would think that if you are a good club, you always have a succession plan in place unless they really do believe that Klopp is in it for the long haul and that he wants to be there and he feels that he's energized by all the pressure as opposed to absolutely exhausted. Um, but I don't know. I feel like, Sam, is that true about Gerard? I think there's would an you want him? as an expectation that at one point he will become Liverpool manager. I, I wouldn't, I mean, if I was Steven Gerrard, I wouldn't fancy much following Klopp because <laughs> that's going to be pretty much an impossible task. You wonder if maybe Gerrard's better as you sort of do the comparison with Lampard there, Lampard coming in at a time of uncertainty for the club and a time of change. I wonder if that's more the case for Gerrard. And we don't know how the, the final years of the Klopp reign will, will pan mm. out and if Liverpool do decline from this extremely um, high high they're currently on, then that would maybe make more sense. But if, if Klopp was to leave on his own accord, which I, I think is more likely than anything, you can't see him getting fired at any point, then, then yeah, there's. A, I mean, Gerrard's obviously going to be in the conversation. You look at someone like Julian Nagelsmann and, and the connection that Liverpool have with, with the Red Bull teams, both in terms of style and in terms of relationship with the amount of players they've signed from there. You see that and think that's a, that's a possible... Um, well, that's a possibility at the very least. So Gerard's like contract uh, Rangers expires the same um, summer as Klopp's at Liverpool. <laughs> I wonder well, whether that means something. Yeah. And the thing is as well, like even this, talking about how they've planned everything so well, I would imagine that because, I mean, football is cyclical, right? And you think a team needs to be redeveloped every three or four years, something like that. So this Liverpool team will be currently, I don't know, because they seem to be at their peak, but you think they should be coming towards the end of a cycle. So Klopp will need to put more into it to get to the next like build the next team that comes along. And it could be that by the time that he eventually, uh, I was about to say passes on, <laughs> that's the wrong turn of phrase, uh, when he eventually hands over the keys to Gerard, which is I think what the inevitable thing would be, that the coaching staff would be in place ready so it's a natural transition and that the players would be ready to, you know, as part of that next cycle when he eventually does come in. So it's not just taking over a team that then plummets a few places in the league, which is what would inevitably happen. 
Liverpool's yeah. structure is very modern in the sense that they've got a they've got a a network and a, and a a business that's run as a sort of holistic in a holistic way rather than purely in the image of their manager. Obviously, Klopp is a huge part of that and defines it. But previously, you know, with other managers, someone like Rafa Benitez, for example, when when Rafa goes, the whole sort of structure goes too, and you have to rebuild pretty much from scratch. I don't think that would be the case with with Klopp. I think there's enough sort of foundations in place for his replacement to come in and, and sort of pick up where he's left off in that sense. Although obviously he's such a big part of that and his charisma and personality defines so much of what Liverpool do. So there are elements there that need fixing, but the actual structure of the club, I think will remain in place. The thing is, is that I always feel like it becomes really difficult for clubs when you, even if you have a good succession plan and a good business plan, if you bring in coaches that have different tactical ideas. So for example, you mentioned Nagelsmann, that worries me a little bit because that is quite different to what I, you know, what Klopp is. So going from a, a man who is like Klopp, who is about rock and roll and vertical football and fast and all of this to move on to Nagelsmann who, I mean, Nagelsmann obviously has that too, but he also has the, you know, keeping possession more of a Pep Guardiola type of look than what would happen. And if you bring in all those players that would suit his style of play and then you revert to somebody else, then you have what Chelsea has, you know? So I, I think sometimes even if you have the world's greatest, you have to look for a certain coach that plays a certain type of football, not keep changing that or have that plan, you know? That's, yeah, I agree with that. And I think you can see it at Barcelona, especially when they've got the set time yeah. play, but also as all football is cyclical, you need to be able to have like the... No, it's not that it's a trend, but uh, the style of football that wins is not always the same one all of the time. So it might yeah. be that someone with a slightly different... Like Luis Enrique changed the way Barcelona played from what Villanova had to make it more counter-attacky. And it was a great team because they had yeah, great players. Yeah, but it was possible with what they had. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And Gerard seems to be very much um, in Klopp's image at Rangers. It's, they don't play anywhere the same because they can't. It's different players. But uh, it's either, you know, a, a narrow 4-2-3-1 or a, a 4-3-3. And it's not that far off what you think Klopp did. I think that the mentality of what Gerard would bring and uh, the, the aura he has, same way that like Zidane had at Real Madrid, right? It's that sort of mm. thing. Like if Steven Gerrard, he just naturally would get more out of some of these players who look up to him, especially if it coincides with a lot of the young players at Liverpool coming through at the time when he probably almost definitely eventually absolutely becomes manager. <laughs> <laughs> just the final word on what's been an absolutely outstanding season for Liverpool but it has felt like a group triumph I want to know from each of you who you think has been the one key player for them this year and who's going to be the key player for the next five years for Liverpool Mina? But you said it then it's the group effort that's why they're such a great team because you can't sing <laughs> that one player um, Virgil van Dijk if there is one player that you're going to say is the the man who just brings it all together, you, ha you have to say it's him because when he came in, the team went up a level, they leveled up. And I just feel like having security at the back allows forwards to feel their, you know, their desire to indulge in whatever they do greatly going forward. So I'm always going to choose a defender. Sam? Uh, yeah, Van Dijk. Best player in the best team. End of discussion for me. Um, going forward, the next five years, I think the development of Trent Alexander-Arnold will be the most interesting thing because growing up through the academy, he was always a midfield player. And I think that's perhaps where his long-term future would be. And if so, I think that could be really interesting. I could see him playing in a sort of De Bruyne-esque role, whipping those crosses in from the right still, but also getting more involved in the general play. And I think he'll, he'll, he'll almost certainly be the next sort of Liverpool captain when, when Henderson goes. So he'll be the player around which the next generation will sort of build, I think. That'll be interesting. You rarely see a player move forward as their career goes on. <laughs> How about you, Jojo? Uh, well, I agree with Van Dijk's hugely important and I agree with Mina that it's a group team so you can't take one out. I think the spine is the most important bit, like your goalkeeper to the centre-back. But uh, Jordan Henderson, for me, has been, you can see the difference when he's not there. He makes everything around yeah. him go up a different level. He'd be my like my pick for player of the year. Uh, like I said before, I don't think technically he's the best player and I think you, you spot his first touch isn't as good as certain others and he misses passes, all that sort of stuff. But what he brings to the team is the kind of thing you can't really evaluate or put into numbers, except you can in football manager. It's determination and leadership. <laughs> <laughs> and they're both 20! What about the FA Cup? It's 
quite exciting, the FA Cup. It feels like it might be the best thing going on in football now that the league's settled. Uh, let's start with Chelsea. They saw off Leicester. Very poor first half from them, but three changes, uh, and they got it done. I think Chelsea have looked really impressive, Mina, uh, as uh, since we've resumed football. Uh, the fact that they came through some adversity in this game and had the strength and depth to uh, see off Leicester, who are, are no mugs, strikes me as very, very positive for them and their future. What do you think? Chelsea, the team of post-lockdown? It's funny, actually, because I remember at the start of the season we were discussing, it, they had a match against Manchester United, and I was like, OK, well, the kids of Manchester United are just better. So in my in my head, it was like... Oh, Chelsea are going to have so many problems. And then you see out this year and you see the way they're playing and you see the way they've come back from quarantine and the way that Lampard dealt with what he didn't like from a, his first half and just making these changes. And you look at that bench and you just feel like there are so many options for him to go for. And that's credit to him because he's given so many kids a chance. He's given so many different people a chance that he can look to the bench and introduce someone and improve the play or keep it to the same level that it already has been if it has been good. And what he's built really has been something that you have to applaud him for. And I actually didn't see it happening, to be honest. I didn't realize his potential as a coach. And I think that what he has when you look over and, and what he is set to bring in this summer with deals already going over the line, this is, an, this is going to be an extraordinary team. And if I'm Liverpool and I'm Manchester City, I'm going to look behind my back at them. There are still some problems in defense, obviously. Um, but and you can see that as well because it's just it was so easy for them to find themselves having to defend players, um, you know, too many balls into the box or a ball over the top, which is something that they have to look at, into. But the fact is, is there are so many different youngsters that want to make the want to make the effort, and if they don't make the effort, then there are the men that you can depend on, like Kovacic. Oh my God, how much do I have to pay to get this player on my team? Because I love this boy. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's amazing. But I think that really going forward with everything they already have, I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with, let alone with the likes of Timo Werner and Hakim Ziyech. And the competition for places will be insane. What about Arsenal, Sam? They were slightly fortunate to win at Sheffield United, but that is back-to-back -back away wins for them now. Possibly a corner turn, but what's going on with Gwendouzi at the moment? Ah, well, Gwendouzi. So, I guess to tell the story as succinctly as possible, um, which is I'm probably going to struggle with. Basically, so, going back to the start, Gwendouzi arrived summer of 2018, uh, just after Wenger left and as Emery was appointed. Uh, he was seen as a youth prospect, pretty much, and somebody who might challenge for the first team within a couple of seasons. On that pre-season, he was basically brilliant and convinced Emery that he was ready to play a bigger part in the first team straight away. And as we all know, Gwendouzi was one of their absolute regulars last season under Unai Emery. And for the first half of this season, when he played loads, started loads of Premier League matches and was developing quite well, despite some obvious flaws in his game, I think. Now, since Arteta has come in, one of the first things Arteta said at his opening press conference, I remember it very clearly, was he was very big on behaviour and values and players having to basically represent the club in a way that he expects. Now, we know for a fact that Gwendouzi hasn't always done that. Um, Gwendouzi has a bit of a temper. He's a bit fiery. He's combustible. And some of these things make him the player he is. And Arteta has accepted that too. But on a pre-season, uh, on a mid-season training camp in Dubai, he clashed with Arteta. There was a row on the training ground, and I was told it continued into the team hotel afterwards. And then, obviously, the events at Brighton last weekend, when basically Gwendouzi lost his cool, grabbed the throat of Neil Morpé, and was very lucky to escape an FA ban. Now it seems that since then, Gwendouzi, well, Gwendouzi, we know for a fact that Gwendouzi has been dropped twice since then and not seen in an Arsenal shirt since that game. Um, there are also very strong reports, which Arteta has not denied, and which people at the club I've spoken to are also not denying, which you could read into as you will, that Gwendouzi has basically said he's happy to leave this summer and be quite keen to get going this summer. So that's where we're at in that situation. Basically, you've got a young player who, loads of self-belief, loads of character, but can be a difficult personality. And you've got a manager who's trying very hard to instill his own ways, his own values. And there's a bit of a clash there. And how it pans out, I'm not entirely sure. I wouldn't be surprised if Gwendouzi leaves because... Where will he go? 
I think I think a lot of clubs in Europe are interested in a lot of clubs. So PSG would be interested in. I think um, they had to know, deal with Rabiot. Clubs. Did they really want to deal with this again? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is is he, is he sort of playing himself out of a big club by being difficult to deal with? We don't know, but there's certainly a lot of talent there. The, the French national team like him. I mean, he's got two years left of his contract at Arsenal, I believe. So he's if they're going to sell him, it's best to sell him now um, when he's got the most sort of resale value in that sense. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. And also, we know from, that Arsenal want a midfielder this summer. Um, they want to sign a midfielder. There's a lot of talk about Thomas Partey. I can't see that happening unless they qualify for the Champions League uh, or they do something very clever and creative like a player swap or that kind of thing. But they're looking to strengthen in that position um, and that's with Guendouzi staying. So they'd be reluctant to let him go in that sense. But if he's not doing what Arteta wants him to do and they also have to bear in mind that as, alongside all of this, Guendouzi has not played as much since Arteta came in and when he has played, Arsenal have been generally worse. So he seems to not fit the style of Arteta as well as he fit Emery's style before so all these reasons that you think that he might be uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he goes this summer basically Oh well at least David Luiz signed a new contract uh, What <laughs> about <you>. Manchester City <laughs> What about Manchester City against Newcastle JJ a pretty standard Man City win brilliant for long periods but uh, Newcastle didn't offer up much apart from briefly deciding to attack and Gale missing a sitter uh, in fact Luke Edwards described this game as a dish so bland it bordered on unpalatable. Uh, I thought Phil Foden was exciting, though, uh, JJ. He's, he's going to be a key player for them next season, surely. Yeah, I also thought it was quite interesting to watch this game. Like, I enjoyed it, JJ. Yeah, I, I don't know what he's on I about. enjoyed it too. I really liked it too. <laughs> so like, it started off, so, um, Steve Bruce has changed the system in recent weeks to like a pretty standard 4-2-3-1. It means they can get their attacking technical players higher up the pitch and they can... Um, give poor old Joe Ellington a bit of support and uh, it seems to have worked they've got half decent players, they're kind of safe so they don't need to play super defensive anymore to just to squeeze out some points but for Man City who are just clearly a world away in, in terms of talent trying to trying to match them up with like man to man in midfield or whatever doesn't make sense so Bruce went with a 5-4-1 with your really deep block, try and block the space make it hard to pass between them but you saw how you could see what Man City had been working on in training. You could see they're trying to thread passes between the lines to someone like David Silva in the hole, and then David Silva would rotate with someone else, and Gundogan would pop in, or Sterling would come in, and they were creating all sorts of chances. And it was inevitable they were going to score. The penalty was kind of stupid to to open it up, but uh, after that, th- th- like he changed it at half time. They went more at Man City. They still lost that half one nil, so you know it doesn't really make that much of a difference. But um. Yeah, that's why the game is interesting to see like the change, complete system, systemic change from first to second half of Newcastle. The same result either way. <laughs> and uh, City, uh, this is the kind of thing that Liverpool have struggled with is breaking down these low blocks. Man City have struggled with it as well because it's hard. Like it's why in the FA Cup you get uh, a little League Two team will end up beating a Premier League one. You just battle it out and get a result. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. a big fan of low blocks and defences and whatever your team Are needs you? to do. Of course, whatever your team needs to do to get the points. But I also like a little bit of proactive defending. I just felt like most of the time they sat back and watched sort of City. And like the players had a lot of time on the ball and a lot yeah. of space around them. And I didn't understand why they weren't being harried or, or pressed enough in the first half. Especially when you consider in that they, you know, the Premier League, they got a 2-2 scoreline with 19% possession. Some yeah. websites think it's, say it's a bit more than that. But they had like, honestly, at the time, City in that match had like 24 shots. They had like 80% possession pretty much. And they struggled against Newcastle. So it's like when you've come across, when you had that kind of game against them before, why are you not doing it this time around? Well, the reason I think for that is that they did actually have success with the same system, the five four one, and when I think they drew them early in the season, and they also got a win at Spurs. Yeah. Same thing. You hit, you stay low, you frustrate the other yeah, team has to them. do all the work. Yeah, but they, they, but you can't hit them because City are set up to know exactly where characters are going. So there goes someone's run up. There was already two v one against them. So they, like, so Maximum would try and do it, he'd lose the ball. Uh, Andy Carroll would go for it and flick it on. There was no one that could get near to them because they were pinned back the entire time, and they can't go in. And Harry and press. And, and press. Well, it could, because as soon as you leave your position, you lose the shape and it frees up that ball between the lines to, for someone like Silva, which is what City were trying to do. So the way City were trying to play meant that Newcastle couldn't 
push forward and try and press them any harder because it would have just as soon as you take one out there you create a gap and that is the exact gap that Man City knew was going to appear and that they're looking for so it's hard and that's why I think when they changed to the 4-2-3-1 they were able to to press a yeah. little bit higher up the pitch maybe more Much of a better. mid-block rather than low and it, and it looks better but it's same way it's actually better for Man City that they play like that like Man City wants teams to do that because that's going to give them more space to be able to play they want to play I think the thing that definitely influenced the way Bruce set up for this, though, surely, was that it was behind closed doors. You would expect that if that ground was packed and it was Newcastle's first quarterfinal in many, many years, um, he would have gone for it a bit more because you've got that added edge of uh, very excited Geordies screaming for their team. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal. And it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan. And me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't represent the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal. We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts. All from different fields, but they have one thing in common. They're at the top of their game, but distinctly down to earth. The good news is I finally learned what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it. It's actually quite simple. Search for Planet Normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. You don't really know what a podcast is, do you? I am one. Look, I am one. Who needs to know what it is? I am one. Okay, shut up. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the Premier League. What about Southampton, another team I've been very impressed by in recent weeks? In theory, Sam, they don't have anything to play for, but they seem to have come back from this break absolutely flying, especially Danny Ings. Yeah, they look good. I, was, I saw them against Norwich on, the first, on their first game after the restart, and it was one of those where you couldn't tell if they were suddenly incredible or Norwich were just dreadful. But it's um, Norwich. Like, of course it was Norwich. Good. <laughs> and then I and then I also saw them against Arsenal last week, and they were much less good. So I do wonder if it was indeed just Norwich. But um, Watford have clearly got issues too, and they're playing. So I think Southampton are playing quite well. If, I think that it seems with Hasselhoff, the longer he's there, I can imagine the better they're going to be. And obviously they had that nine nil and the and the repercussions that followed that, and the soul searching that followed. But there was a great interview with Hasselhoff by. Our man Jeremy Wilson a few weeks back and talking about his playbook and the philosophy he's trying to instill in the club. And, and I think you're starting to see signs that's really coming together. I mean, they're absolutely safe from the drop, which is, you know, when they lost that game 9-0 to Leicester, you wouldn't have thought that at this point in the season. And yeah, Danny Ings is flying. I, I loved his first goal yesterday. Just because when a keeper doesn't move, it's always better, it, aesthetically. <laughs> that's just a rule of life. Um, and yeah, Ings is doing really well. Nathan Redmond's playing well I think and and obviously James Ward-Prowse is is doing the business and I think he's I think he's thrived since being given the captain's armband in lockdown so yeah they're a good team I'm not quite sure they've got enough quality as it stands to really push on next season beyond mid-table but maybe someone else would argue argue otherwise. What about Wolves Mina are they going to keep up the momentum they're developing at the moment they seem to be really benefiting from not having the Europa League to deal with at the moment. Yeah, but weirdly enough, I feel like even if they were playing every day, they'd still be really good. I, I don't know what it is about the side, but there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously a lot of amazing, you know, physical abilities that they do have. But there's also a lot of intellect in that side. And, and I think that they all almost enjoy being a small squad. It's like they have this belief in them. They have this harmony in the dressing room. Um but they're, obviously, we've seen how good they are going forward. Dodonka and, and, um, and Traore, obviously, is stunning to watch. Um, he's just, he continues getting better by the day. But it's also the fact that, you know, they, they haven't lost or conceded a single goal since their comeback, since they've come back from quarantine and all of that business. It's, that's incredible. And when you look at the rest of the matches they have, they're all winnable games, except for the one against Chelsea, which... Looks a little bit scary, to be honest. You know, they are, they do have Sheffield United coming up and Everton, but Sheffield United sort of they're not the same team that they were before. I don't know what's going on, although you saw flashes of it in the FA Cup and you thought, oh, are they back? But not really. Everton, <laughs> I never know what to expect from them, but I always feel like you can defeat them, even though it's Carlo Ancelotti. Um, there's just something about the way that they move, the fact that they have all this energy all the time um, and how they preserve that energy Weirdly enough, because of, because almost you can from the joy that they have playing this game. I don't know what it is, but 
they will be tough to to really be or I, I feel like they've got a really good chance coming forward because of the fixture list but obviously you know there's other competitors and you've got the likes of Manchester United and, and, and Chelsea all pushing so remains to be seen there was a great clip put on Wolves' Twitter account, I think, uh, after their game against Bournemouth recently. Of um, It was like a close-up of Adama Traore running past four players. And because there's no crowd, obviously, you can't hear... You can hear the players. And as he beats like the third man, you just hear this shout from someone in Bournemouth going, Foul him! <laughs> <laughs> then he gets wiped out. Then he gets wiped out and you hear a, Well done! <laughs> it's just, it's just Tactics! Oh, <laughs> lovely English football. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, finally, in the Premier League, JJ Villa, not in a good moment. It's fair to say they're on the wrong end of that Wolves win. Some of their fans now seemingly not happy with Dean Smith. Is that a bit harsh? Probably. Like The problem that Aston Villa have is they're not very good. And uh, yeah. there's not much there's a lot, there's a lot of drops <laughs> yeah. at the bottom of the Premier League, isn't it? It feels like three, only three teams going down feels like a mistake this season. I'd like to see yeah. five go. Yeah, like the, the thing I've got with Dean Smith, so I think obviously he's. Um, a talented coach has got Villa to where they are, but the when um, when John McGinn got injured, it really disrupted how they play. And like, one of the things I looked at this last week was I uh, went through um, looking at playmakers and and how they get affected by being fouled all the time. Players like Grealish and uh, Damatrori at Wolves, and Grealish is by far and away Villa's most creative player, but he's also by far and away the most fouled player in the Premier League. So if you kick him, he can't create. And so it's his chances from open play I'm talking about here. So like, although he will help create chances from set pieces, which, you know, you don't always score from them. Uh, so so Villa relying on Grealish to create all their chances. They don't really have great goal scorers. Wide players aren't fantastic. This game against Wolves, so what a lot of teams have done against Aston Villa is they've flooded the midfield so that they can um, kind of negate the influence of McGinn and Grealish, especially. And then Grealish started getting moved out wide left because then that way they couldn't just block the midfield and he still influenced games. But, uh, so for Wolves, he changed the system to like a 4-3-1-2. So he basically had a midfield diamond, which in theory would give him numerical advantage against Wolves' three. Didn't really make a difference because the players aren't good enough. So this is not like... <laughs> either you can get... like Say that you put another manager in, the most likely thing they would do is uh, do one of these horrible low-block type setups or they could go and do some Hassan Huttle-style high-pressing high and it might work, and might win a couple of games. But Dean Smith might win a couple of games. I uh, don't think it's really his fault and what you see now the problem is that he's now trying to change things to get a result but none of the things are working which makes you look almost like you don't know what you're doing as a manager when actually he does know but he just can't get a winning formula with it and it, I can't see a way they're going to survive it now Let's do a quick fast song for Europe with Mina uh, Mina, Barcelona, Drew Two all at Celta Vigo. Goal from man from the past, Iago Aspas for Celta Vigo. What's going wrong for Barca at the moment? To be honest, I'm surprised anything went right this season. This is kind of where we expected them to be because I think when you're a club that has been as badly run as Barcelona has been for the last four or five years, there was always going to be a time where it, they weren't just going to implode in the Champions League, they were going to implode somewhere you know, in Spain too. Um, especially when their opponents don't have the problems they usually have in Real Madrid. Um, listen, let's put it to put it really as as swiftly as I can. This is a team that spent nearly a billion US dollars on players that whose careers they've practically ruined. Um, you know, they've brought in Usman Dembele. The players, you know, injury prone, fine. It just hasn't really worked out. Um, they brought in Coutinho, sending him out on loan. Then you've got like a. a, a hundreds and god knows how many when I was looking at the names you know Gerard Delefeu, Alex Vidal, Arda Turan who just sort of stopped playing football, Malcolm that they stole from Roma um, none of these players went on to do anything you know Junior Firpo I don't know what's going to happen with him they brought in Martin Braithwaite because they didn't have Luis Suarez, Suarez is there then what are you going to do with Braithwaite they even brought in Kevin Prince they have this ability to so they have this panic thing and they feel like oh my god what if we're not amazing so let's just go out even if it's 20 million on Braithwaite let's you know even if it's Alcacer who's just sitting on the bench um, let's just bring them in you know we need cover 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 there doesn't seem to be a long-term strategy at the moment they're not identifying the best players for their game they're identifying just the best players so right now the the guy in vogue is Frank De Jong so we're going to bring him in you know the guy in vogue is this guy so we're going to bring him in and 
you know, we'll look at Gremio, who's their best player, Arthur Mello, let's bring him in. And it doesn't seem to be an actual plan because we don't really know who's making the decisions. There isn't, you know, a transfer group or, or men that you go to going, oh, I know this is the guy who's in charge of this, you know. There isn't that. There's about 10 or 15 people in charge of this. And a lot of the time it has to do with prestige or I don't know why they're going for certain players that they're going for. It's like, we have to spend the name our money. You know, Coutinho is the player everyone is talking about, so we get him. Griezmann is the player everyone wants, so we get him. But the thing is, is that there isn't a natural role for Griezmann within the side because the natural role that he plays is already occupied. And then they get upset with him not doing the things that he, he should be doing, but it's, it's not fair. So really, it's just bad management at the moment, frankly speaking, and a lot of wasted money. Not ideal. Last time we spoke, Juve had lost the Coppa Italia, but they're back with a bang now, and now four points clear at the top of Serie A. Can we all stop paying attention to the Italian title race? I do think I do think it's time to pay uh, stop paying attention because Lazio had a game against Fiorentina, and if they had lost that one, then I would have told you, you know, definitely switch off. But they didn't, and they're still only four points behind. Which usually in any other year, I'd be telling you that's four year uh, that's four points behind a really great team. But this is still sad as Juve, and it just doesn't seem to be really working at the moment I think that they're winning a lot of the times because they do have players like Ronaldo and Dybala who can make the difference um uh, there is the individual sort of strength that they have in their players but their overall game like this will be surprising if this team gets anywhere in Champions League at the moment they have to really level up at their style of play at the moment because it seems like what they have is they went from a pragmatic coach in Allegri and players that sort of just you know, were really good in their specific roles, but not really good enough to play Sadi's game in that sense. They don't have those skills that so they're having to change too much at this in the in one go. And you can really feel that. So I feel like this is a Juve side that could potentially lose. They've got some tough games coming up. They still have to play Lazio. Lazio is beating them practically all the time. So that will be interesting. They still have to play Milan, who all of a sudden look like they are a force to be reckoned with. So I really wouldn't discount that yet. And what about Ian Robin finally, Mina? He's going to return to football with his boyhood club Groningen at the age of 36. He says it's his dream to pull on their shirt again. Um, perhaps we should be encouraging more of this post-pandemic, all recently retired superstars to have to turn out for their boyhood clubs. Yeah, I think it's such a sweet idea. He was like, you know, I, I just kept thinking, what can I do to help my club during the coronavirus pandemic? And and I thought actually the best thing for me was, you know, to come out of retirement and offer them my services. And it just kind of feel like he's sat there at home thinking, this is not the life for me. I need to get out and, you know, let me go and play football again. But there's, you know, I think there's the, these things sort of happen. I feel like Zlatan at the moment wants to go back to the club that it's not his boyhood club. It's the, it's the club that he's invested in, in Hammerby in Sweden. Um, and then you had Daniele De Rossi go to Boca, again, not his boyhood club, but the club that he's dreamt of playing for for so long outside of his beloved Italy. So I don't know. I just, I love this idea. I think we should all do that. Yeah, yeah. It will be exciting to see him at the age of 36 coming in off the right flank and shooting outside the box with his left foot. Still just very, great. very slowly. <laughs> Let's finish off with a question we put to our friends on social media. After Adebayo Akinfenwa wore a Liverpool shirt to Wickham Wanderers training, what is the best or worst example of a player compromised by divided loyalties? We had a lot of responses to this on Twitter. Paddy says, I think Big Dunk, uh, Duncan Ferguson, had an Everton tattoo whilst playing for Newcastle. Uh, I'm not sure that's massively divided loyalties. Those clubs don't hate each other enough. But Jack says, surely Lee Clark wearing a sad Mac and Bastards t-shirt to a Newcastle FA Cup final while being a Sunderland player is up there. Quite right, Jack. Kieran tweeted us a picture of Gareth Bale with that Wales golf, then Real Madrid flag. Uh, JLM says Lampard scoring for City against Chelsea is the only answer. But I love this from Cynic Kuzfuz who says Pirlo is absolutely the best example of this. I wonder if there was a player who ever played for a country's three biggest clubs and yet was admired by all of them and all of their supporters. Heartwarming stuff. JJ, what's your example here? Uh, loads and loads and loads in Scotland, like especially because you have a lot of glory hunters who grew up supporting one of the Rangers or Celtic. So they had like, at Aberdeen, you had um, a boy called Xander Diamond, who was a, a really talented young centre-back who was... Celtic mad to the point that he would post pictures on Bebo of him with a Celtic cake. He would wear Celtic tops and gyms and stuff like that. Then you see him turn out for your team against Celtic, and it's uh, it's odd. So there's players who support Rangers who uh, 
you know that they're Rangers fans. It's like commonly known, uh, not a secret. Uh, also, I've got people on Twitter telling me that there was um, a boy who played in the same age group as Ross McCormack at Rangers. They said apparently he used to turn up wearing Celtic gear to Rangers training. But my, I think my current favourite is that I think Steven Gerrard supports Liverpool so much that were they like in the Champions League final and Rangers had a game the same day, he would rather watch the <laughs> Liverpool game. <laughs> it genuinely feels like that. Yeah, I'm sure he'll get that chance at some point. How about you, Sam? Uh, I'm going to take you to the Venezuelan Oh, please line, do. Which is slightly <laughs> I love it, vibe, man. but it's, it's, the place to, it's, the, it's the place to be right now. Um, at end of last season, so May 2019, uh, a player called Gianluca Maldonado scored a last-minute goal against a team called Puerto Cabello. And he scored a last-minute goal, a wonderful curling strike to, uh, to give his side a 2-2 draw. And then he broke down into tears on the pitch. And he was, he was gutted and devastated that he just scored this amazing last-minute winner at the end of the season because it had denied the opposition a place in the playoffs. And the opposition's manager was his oh, father. Marvellous. Yes. So he, his own brilliance on the pitch undermined the career and hopes of his this own This isn't football, family. this is a Hollywood movie. <laughs> I know, incredible wow. scenes. Have you ever heard anything no, like it? No, I mean, so can you better that? Questions to which the answer is no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. But if they do make the film, please can we have JJ read the credits? <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely. I thought, you'd, I thought you'd say Balotelli, you know. Oh, Baratelli, yeah, that's one. I, I, for me, it's always people and Zaggy. Um, I feel like you know he grew up at Juve, like you know, not grew up, but became really great at Juve, and they had they they used to call the attack Del Pipo because of Del Piero and Pipo and Zaggy, and then he went on to become this Milan legend. And I'm like, wait, hold on, you know, what happened there? And you know, I mean, I know we know he's a player who lives in the offside, but this happens a lot in Italy and actually Spain too where players just happily move from big team to big team and it just seems totally normal um, but sorry I don't have a story that's amazing as amazing as yours Sam yeah well done Sam Del Pipo is a phenomenal a phenomenal nickname when did we stop having merged yeah. names like that and when did we start using I, when, names like the BBC and MSN that's rubbish <sighs> I was the kids Pipo. in their Twitter. Yeah, Del Pipo was such a legendary striker. Yeah, they're just they're just trying to save to characters for the hashtag now, unfortunately. <laughs> That's your lot for this week. You can contact me on Twitter before next Monday's episode. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. Plus, here's a new one for you. How about signing up for our fantastic Telegraph Sport Football Nerds newsletter? It's a weekly email which goes into a specific trend in football and gives you some fantastic statistics which explain why it's happening. Look in our show notes for how to get involved with that. You can also contact the podcast through the traditional format of email. The address is afcpodcast at telegraph.co.uk. We'll read out the best of what you send us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast either. Just look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.